So this is the Interledger Community Call. It's the 29th of April, bi-weekly call. Um, if you listen to this on a recording, um, then you know, 29th of April. Um, the agenda for this week's call is pretty full. Uh, for anyone who's new, we uh, track an agenda on the forum ahead of time. A um, couple of topics proposed, uh, some stuff around open payments and SPSP from Matt. Um, I've got a presentation that speaks to some of that um, and can talk to a few of the updates on the website, which are still in a PR. Um, David wanted to talk about open payments as well, um, and specifically uh, receipts and personal data propagation. Matt's been doing some work on receipts, uh, so I think good topic to cover there. And then something that's just been under discussion a while, sort of concept of uh, resilience and packet loss and accounting and uh, so on. So I wanted to just serve as that for some general discussion. I think it could get pretty deep and hairy, that discussion. So um, we'll leave that till the end if we've got time and possibly uh, leave it as a, something to discuss for a while on the forum first. Um, before I go on, any other business? Anybody have any other topics they wanted to pick up today? Okay, um, so let's start with uh, open payments and SPSP. Um, Matt, do you want to take the lead on this or should I dive straight into the, those slides? No, I think dive into it. So I think it's going to be easier because you also wrote the initial comment there, um, the initial like forum thread. So I think you should, should leave okay. it fine. Okay, cool. So, so yeah, I mean, long and short of it is uh, we're trying to position open payments as basically the next version of SPSP. Um, so the idea being if you run an SPSP server, um, an open payments client uh, could still interact with you for a subset of open payments use cases, specifically, you know, just sending money via a stream, um, but that there's a sort of clear path to upgrading from SPSP to open payments um, and that open payment supports the use cases that SPSP does today. Uh, so that's sort of the goal. Um, we posted up, uh, um, I posted up a topic on this in the forum. There's been some good discussion. Uh, I'm gonna show you a quick bunch of slides, which I think encapsulate where our current thinking is um, with regards to that, as well as with regards to um, the uh, payment pointers and metadata and so on. Um, and then let's, yeah, let's have a, a quick discussion about it. So I'm just gonna share my screen, but I need to first find the presentation. Um, here we go, uh, present and, and, Okay, so um, please tell me if you are able to see this slide. We are. Cool, okay. Uh, so this is a bit of a throw together, I apologize. It's um, what I managed to put together sort of during the course of today looking at things I was already busy working on in the updates to the docs. Um, it's hopefully gives a good high level idea of where we're going. 
Um, and I'm, I must say, I'm quite happy with where we've landed. It's quite nice and simple and easy to understand. So um, first up, the main sort of uh, entities that are involved. So we talk about wallets. Um, we basically, and a wallet is anything that holds sort of an account uh, for a user. So, um, you know, it could be a bank, could be a digital wallet, could be uh, all sorts of things. But ultimately, they would host the SPSP, the open payment server and the client. But you have this concept of a wallet. Then, then you have a concept of a user. Um, so in this case, Alice. Um, and you have accounts. Uh, so I represented those just as cards in Ennis. Um, but for example, Alice has got a check, a current account or a default account or a main account and a savings account. Uh, and then what's important is that accounts have one or more URLs uh, which identify them. So in this case, the first account uh, is Alice's default account. She's also created a kind of a vanity payment pointer. So um, a, a nice shortened URL, which the wallet allows her to do. Um, and that uh, points to her default account. She could in the future change that to point to a different account if she wants to. Uh, but the point is that uh, open payment servers host um, URLs. We call them, I've called them in the spec, payment pointer URLs. And a payment pointer URL points to an account. And there could be the, the relationship there is that one account can have many URLs. Uh, and the payment pointer URLs have a special shortened encoding, which is the payment pointer. So you can see under the name Alice is her vanity payment pointer or personal payment pointer, which she could you know, share with people in the same way as you would share an email address or credit card number. Um, that's the purpose of that. But most of the time, this stuff is shared like by applications or machine to machine. So um, you, know, you might use the long form um, in a lot of cases anyway. Everyone kind of happy with that for now. Uh, I see stuff coming up in the chat. Um, so David asked, what's is calling out that an account can have multiple URLs? I think that's a um, useful feature for wallets to offer. Um, one, because I think um, an account, uh, it doesn't have to, by the way. I, like I think, you know, it doesn't really change the interoperability of own payments. But I think, for example, if I have a single account and I want to have money coming in from different sources and I want to track uh, the money from those different sources differently, I might um, get my wallet to mint a new URL for each. Or if I want to preserve my privacy, I want to be handing out a different URL to different people all the time to prevent them tracking me or whatever the case may be. I think it's a I think it's a useful feature to be able to do that. Um, so this is just I mean this is how we're thinking about it. So first uh, thing that's quite different to how we had originally posed open payments is discovery. Um, so given the payment pointer, you know wallet.example slash Alice, that um, becomes wallet.example slash Alice as a URL form. Um, the first thing you'll see is that the Open, uh, open payments client would just do a get against that URL instead of doing a sort of complicated like, um, you know, uh, indirection by figuring out a host and so on. Um, it just hits that URL directly, does a get, um, but specifically it requests application JSON as the content type. Um, uh, and so by, you know, through sort of 
media type uh, differentiation, the server recognizes that as a metadata request and it returns metadata about that account. So it could be things like what's the authorization endpoint and token endpoint. So those are credentials defined in the OAuth server metadata spec. It could be things like supported currencies. Um, it could be links to other uh, URLs, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a general, it's a place to put metadata about the account. And I think as the standard evolves, we'll have new things in there. Um, and this might come up in your conversation later, David, about discovery around like user information. Um, the next thing, uh, and this was sort of debated a bit on the forum, I've taken a punt at a, an idea here. I've said, the next thing you wanna do with that um, account URL is you wanna make a connection to it. So you wanna connect. Uh, and so instead of getting metadata, you're getting connection credentials. And so uh, the, the media type you ask for is a connection. And what you get back is an IP address and shared secret, and you can use that to connect to the account and start streaming in money. Uh, so that's kind of along the lines of what SPSP gives you today, except that instead of asking for SPSP4 plus JSON as the media type, you ask for connection plus JSON. Obviously, you know, we can bike shed that media type to death as well. I'm happy to do that. Um, how does that compare to um, legacy SPSP? Um, so what you could do um, is you could specify multiple media types in order of preference. So as a open payments client, you could say, I accept connection or I accept uh, SPSP before. In this case, uh, you're talking to a legacy SPSP server and it returns back uh, legacy SPSP4 response. So it's destination account and shared secrets and you'll notice that the content type is SPSP4. So uh, in that way, um, we can gracefully upgrade clients to accept both legacy servers and open payment servers. Um, and, and, you know, we'll, we'll um, be able to support both uh, as long as they both exist. Uh, next thing we would wanna do is I wanna make a payment. So in this case, Bob um, uh, wants to make a payment to Alice. So uh, the first thing Bob does is post to Alice's account URL. I wanna make a payment into that account. So you post an invoice uh, that creates the invoice and you get back the URL of the invoice. Um, and then given the URL of the invoice, you can get a connection. So you do a get against that invoice URL, you ask for a connection, you get back a connection exactly the same as you would have for the account itself. And any payments you make into that connection are specifically for that invoice. Um, finally, you wanna create a mandate. So you wanna actually create a mandate against the account to pull money. So same thing, you post against that, um, against that account, but you specify that you're creating a mandate. If um, the account allows mandates or for whatever business rule reasons, the server uh, decides that's okay, you get that created and you get back a URL for the mandate. The next thing you need to do is now get authorization to actually make charges against that mandate. So you've now got a unique URL that represents that mandate resource. And so you'd follow the OAuth flow. Um, you would submit, an authorization request to the authorization endpoint per standard OAuth 2. The um, resource you're looking to access is that mandate and you'd go through the flow there um, where Alice would get you know, directed to a site where she agrees to give you permission to charge that mandate. 
and in return you end up with a token that you can use as a bearer token to start making charges against the bandit. Um, and then what proposed here is you would then start submitting invoices against that mandate um, using your bearer token that you got back through the uh, authorization flow. Um, and what that would do is, you know, create uh, invoices specifically against that mandate. Um, and you would have a, a URL you can go to to check the status of that invoice. So in the background, when you submit that invoice, Alice is going to open a connection um, to Bob to pay the invoice and, and is, um, sorry, I've got that wrong now, Matt, haven't I? Um, I added that in the last five minutes. It should be a charge, not an invoice. Um, so, yeah. um, so that shouldn't be an invoice, that should be a charge. So uh, you create a charge against the mandate and then um, Alice will uh, make the payment to Bob for that charge. Um, Hopefully that gives everyone kind of a high level idea, but I'm gonna stop there. I know we've got a lot to get through, so I'm, I apologize for rushing. Uh, any questions, discussion on that? Thoughts, proposed changes? Adrian, just to clarify that when you create a charge, that's telling the sender to push money to the receiver, basically. Yeah, yeah. Matt, do you want to, I mean, Matt's been working on this um, definitely in more detail than me. Um, do you want to explain the mandate and charge process a bit more in a bit uh, sure, more detail? Sure. sure. So, um, so um, David, the, the simple problem we're trying to solve here is how do you deal with cases where I want to get money at a periodic interval, like scoped under some object where I can request certain push payments to take place? Um, so the idea would be like the, the basic idea would be, let's say it's a subscription. Um, so every month I want to be able to debit your account for $5. So I create a mandate that says every month I want to get $5. And then when that five, um, when that month, new month comes about, I can submit a charge, which when you submit a charge, it's an invoice to go and complete the payment. Um, the reason previously we didn't really have a concept of like an object representing the request to pay. Uh, an invoice out of a mandate. Um, and the reason that it came up was basically, how do you deal with item potency? How do you deal with cases where the wallet might want to asynchronously actually pay that? So it might not happen synchronously. Um, so the, the, the idea of the charge just allowed that process to be more sort of um, self-contained and you can actually track the status of that charge. So if you know that the payment failed, you could, and the charge had a status of failed, you would know that you could definitely try again to do a new charge because the payment didn't even succeed. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, so just the feedback that I want initially from this, the initially we had URLs, URLs for a lot of these things as generic URLs across the whole, um, uh, across the whole wallet. So the wallet would just have like an AP, like a, a mandates endpoint where all mandates would be submitted or an invoices endpoint where all invoices are uh, submitted. And actually that ended up becoming quite difficult, like not difficult, but it just ended up like writing applications became quite tricky because basically you'd get, get a payment pointer, um, have to go work out then um, what is the root URL, do the discovery part, and then you'd get the metadata back. And then from the metadata, you can find out the mandates or invoices endpoint and then post it. Um, when, and then you would use the, the subject, which would be the payment pointer to say who you're trying to create this for. 
um, that ended up being quite clunky when a lot of, like you wouldn't be doing this really at like so frequently. So the idea would be you could cache that server metadata. So it, like it, you could cache it, but that just never, like it, the, the frequency of these types of things is quite limited that it, it actually makes it so much nicer having the, the payment point to represent all of that stuff, that the account URL being like the process to initiate everything, because then it's a much smaller surface to worry about. And you can do things a lot quicker because now instead of having three or four um, you, um, your URL or API calls to do something, now you can just get a payment point and already do it on the first time. Um, I can post an invoice to it and I can see whether that invoice is created or not, which is quite nice. Um, and I think the big thing is, do, do people have a fundamental disagreement with how the new structure is, uh, as opposed to the old structure? I like uh, this. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I like this design uh, a lot better. Uh, one question I have um, was around the stream credentials being returned, like that being a separate request from the invoice. Um, What's, what's kind of the idea behind that versus returning them together? I, that, that's how it was before we had, um, you would get the credentials using an options request um, as opposed to a get. Uh, that felt a bit like obscure. And so um, switched it to doing a get and requesting a connection, but you switch it to a differentiating based on media type. In terms of does it need to be differentiated at all? I don't know, Matt, do you remember why? Why we split those? Um, I yeah. I, like, why wouldn't the destination address and shared secret just be included in the, halo, the invoice response? rather than yeah, yeah that's that's no, no, I, I'm, I, I, I totally understand the question I'm trying to remember why we uh, dis distinguished between them so the I idea can't. was that um, so, so the, the actual idea was that you would be the getting of credentials or getting of the invoice may be two different like processes so um, let's say I create an invoice um for for you Kincaid but I don't want you to be able to do a get against the actual invoice so I don't want you to be able to see the invoice details um and then but you could still go get the connection details because I don't care who gets that because that doesn't really make any uh like fundamental difference but you, I don't want you to be able to see oh what the description is on this invoice or stuff like stuff like that but I don't know if that's actually an issue anymore to be quite honest um I'm thinking through it I think you should probably treat a lot of the stuff um as being potentially protected anyway through the open payments network. Um, yeah, I, to be honest, there's no good reason it can't. Yeah, that's useful feedback. I mean, we can, we can try that and um, I mean, you could have, I guess there's no reason why you can have both and, and just has it as an optimization that by default, if you create an invoice, you get back connection details. Um, I guess the one thing is, um, parts of the invoice are going to not change um, and you would expect every time you do a get on the invoice URL that you'd get different connection credentials um, and so those would be changing each time and the data is probably coming from different parts of the system. I don't know it feels like something we need to do some implementation to test um, to be sure we haven't made it difficult for ourselves.
Adrian, can you just clarify the problem or or the or Kincaid's suggestion that I didn't I didn't quite follow what he right. Was suggesting. So so when you create an invoice, you get redirected back to the invoice. You'll also get the actual body of the invoice in the response. So it's sort of standard kind of REST stuff where you you do the post, you get a two hundred one created response. You'll get a location header that tells you the URL of the new resource you created but you'll also get the resource in the response body. What Kincaid's suggesting is why not put the uh, stream credentials in the invoice response body as well, instead of going on to this step where to pay the invoice, you do a get against the invoice URL and explicitly ask for stream credentials versus the invoice itself. Um, so basically we've treated the invoice and the connection credentials as separate resources or, or even uh, if I'm going to be a, a purist here, separate representations of the same resource. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually, for what it's worth, prefer this model, I think, unless the other, like the use case I have in mind is like a um, bunch of friends paying one invoice, like for dinner or something. It's contrived, but I do, th I do think there could be times where you need multiple connections per invoice. So, Maybe Kincaid, all you're just saying is I do think, it get on the invoice. I think that is true. I think in terms of the entity relationships, there will always be multiple connections per invoice, one or more. But you could optimize this by saying every time you get the invoice, you get different credentials in that response. Um, yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then David Benoit points out that IOP address and share secret are probably... There's some, there's some verbiage in the SVSP spec about caching and storing of those, David, which I'll definitely transfer across the open payments uh, specs as well. I'll talk about whether that, and that might be another reason why, like you might be okay caching invoice contents, but not um, stream credential details. So you'd have different cache control headers around those. Um, need to think about that a bit more. I think uh, um, I just also... wanted. I wanted yeah, to quickly ahead. point out, I think I've corrected this charge slide um, to reflect what we discussed, Matt. This was the idea of submitting an invoice as part of the charge. So you're submitting a charge against the mandate and what you provide is actually the URL of an invoice on your own system. So in this case, this is other wallet. Um, so this is Bob saying, I've created an invoice for what you owe me and I want you to pay that invoice uh, on the basis of the mandate that you really authorized. And so, you submit the invoice to be paid, and now Alice's wallet will pay that invoice um, if they agree that it's covered under the mandate that it's being submitted against. So, so one way to do it is you submit an invoice URL, the other is you actually submit the details of the amount that you want sent. Um, that's, the, that's the thank you. I think one other thing to consider is uh, we've, we've already had <coughs> versioning problems with SPSP, right? So we're at four, we talk a lot about SPSP5, and so you probably want the connection endpoint to be able to version independently of the invoice endpoint. And, you know, so you could imagine SPSP6 coming, and maybe you want to do that to pay the invoice instead of SPSP4. So my, just to be clear, my current proposal um, is that SPSP4 is only in there to support legacy, um, legacy servers, and that that would go away and you would move towards a sort of standardized idea of like uh, connection, invoice, mandate, um, yeah. 
as the as the media types and then at least in, at least initially those don't need a version number but if you introduced a new one you could i think what we should try and do is prefer um version detection through the uh schemas rather so like if the schema you try and you know not make breaking changes to the schema but then uh you know json is pretty um malleable we could we could say like if you're adding things we should say up front you should be um uh sort of able to accept stuff uh that's not spec today so like don't throw away incoming requests with things that you don't understand or something like that. I don't know. I'm, I'm kidding. My Beyond calls yeah. all day. I'm going to be rambling a bit. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't preemptively version. So connection plus JSON makes sense, but you could imagine a year goes by somebody finds some new thing that's missing from connection plus JSON. And we want to introduce connection to plus JSON. Mm -hmm. Um, it would be nice to not have to version the entire invoice uh, just to support some kind of new connection. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe that's a way to explicitly request um, an invoice that includes connection details. So we could give yeah. that some thought, Kincaid. Yeah, maybe, maybe we do both. Like uh, I don't want to dwell on this. Yeah, I don't want to dwell on this too long because we're already half an hour in and this was just sort of give everyone an overview so that would inform your review of the actual uh, websites when that pull request is finished. So I've got a draft PR. I'm kind of maybe a third of the way into, um, into updating everything. I'm just adding commits to that PR as I go. So feel free to just, you know, watch that PR or <laughs> um, offer to do some of the work, <laughs> um, but I will, uh, I will send a mail or make a forum post when that's done. And I think that's a good way to then discuss what's in there. Um, people can talk to the PR itself and we can kind of come to a consensus on where we end up. Here. Um, cool. Cause I, I think there's a bunch of other stuff. I, I think it would be really good for us to get to today. So I don't want to dwell on this any longer, but I, I hope that gives everyone a good idea of the direction. And it sounds like general happiness with the direction, um, but we'll get into the specific details of the time. Um, Adrian, I did, I did want to just quickly say um, one problem we sort of orthogonally been having over at Spring that we should think about here is um, like basically just maybe designing our mime types properly or something. So for example, like twitter.com slash Alice, uh, you know, you could imagine Twitter having mm -hmm. an, an API there already that, you know, responds to application slash JSON. Mm. And we don't have the ability to like malleably take, you know, twitter.com slash Alice and like actually go to some other URL due to the payment pointer spec. So we should just be careful about not stepping on like potential other existing functionality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so the payment point of spec has the idea of like the well-known if you want to use top-level domains as your payment pointers. Um, so you can go to the well-known pay. That was there for that purpose. Um, I, I guess it'll be up to wallets. Like if you want to give people like sort of nice shortened vanity payment pointer URLs, um, you'd have to pick some namespace that's, you know, isn't going to trade on other things. So maybe I think one of the wallets that does it today, I think it might be Stronghold, 
already gives out payment pointers at ilp.stronghold.com or something like that. So that way they know everything in that subdomain is specifically, you know, ILP requests. Um, but yeah, good, good consideration. Thanks. Um, any other last comments on that or are we okay to, to move on? Because I think um, I want to kind of combine Matt's second bullet point with David's second one. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of a concept of how do we start actually exchanging information beyond setting up the payment um, with open payments. Uh, and I think, David, you guys have a bit of experience with this um, in your pay ID work. Um, Matt, how did you want to open up that discussion? Yeah, so um, I think there's a there's a can of worms here. Um, everybody, sorry for the background noise. I've got uh, somebody doing an indoor training cycle here that we're on lockdown, so I do apologize. There's a hum. Um, if it's too distracting, I can try and move. But if not, then I'll just carry on. Uh, how, how bad is it, by the way? No, it's fine. Okay. Um, so the idea here is that a lot of these endpoints, we are thinking they can't just be open in the sense that anybody can hit them. And one of the bigger issues is if I want to create a mandate, who is the underlying entity that that mandate is given to? Um, so these entities are either wallets or, or like financial service providers, or there would be sort of applications built on top of open payments. Um, so merchants, shops, uh, applications, etc. And now you run into this problem, like if I ask for a mandate, how do we deal with a scenario where a website or application doesn't have to go to every single wallet and go and create an OAuth2 client just to be able to interact with them? Um, so this concept of identity becomes quite important. Um, I know identity is quite a loaded term, but for us, it's more like, I thinking initially it's more, how do we create a, a a secure way that people within the open payments network can verify that the entity that is making this request is who they are and they have some sort of way to say they trust that that is who they are. Um, so yeah, I think it speaks a little bit to David's point, but the issue I'm trying to solve is that, but I think David also wants to look at it as participants within that network. How can they share information as well? And, and um, you know, this isn't a new problem. If we look at existing payments, you know, when you're buying something with a credit card, there's an implicit trust in the merchant because uh, you trust that merchant because they were able to get access to card acquiring services, which means they were vetted by a bank who is part of the scheme that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's kind of these trust networks that, as users, maybe we don't necessarily uh, explicitly recognize, but they're there and we, we need to try and come up with something that gives, yeah, a similar, a similar level of like trust to the user. Am I, who, who am I actually authorizing a mandate for here? Is it randomhacker.com who's just somehow managed to persuade me that they're, this merchant or is it, uh, is it actually the merchant? Um, yeah, pretty, pretty long running and difficult challenge online. And David, I don't know if you guys have, uh, can share anything about how you're doing that with pay ID. 
Yeah, um, I mean, so I think the idea is to have optionality. So like out of the gate, we're just relying on like web PKI. So if you're, um, I mean, it's not quite the same as open payments, but in PayID, like you, you could base, but each side has its own um, domain essentially. And so we can root in um, like internet certificate authorities and do, you know, sort of the protocol that way. In open payments, well, I guess the other thing is like, I think the conceptually we're leaving room for a different type of um, PKI network, I guess. So you could imagine a consortium of people that say, we're gonna create our own sort of um, certificate authority or trust chain or like whatever that thing ends up being. I think in open payments, um, yeah, we probably like I, my instinct is we want to rely on sort of web PKI as much as we can. So I, I'm actually intrigued by some of the, I don't know, you, you and Matt have drops, dropped um, hints, I guess, to like some of the sort of different auth mechanisms going on in the auth community, maybe, or, or various standards committees. Um, I wonder, though, too, if like you could imagine certain flows where like the sender and the receiver need to like have these strong assertions about each other. But it seems like there are also use cases where that doesn't hold. So for example, if I'm making a payment to Amazon, let's say, and, and I'm a, like a, the customer, it seems like the, the, um, my wallet and their website, like I ought to be able to kind of with reasonable confidence, like trust that I'm actually hitting Amazon Loosely, we have that problem like now in the browser anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say like uh, at least today, the, the security model with the web is origin based. And so if you explicitly go to an origin, you go to amazon.com and you start shopping there and then you check out, you're trusting that the code on their site is not somehow stealing your money. Mm. Um, and and then still tricking Amazon into thinking that they're you know goods or whatever. I mean, you 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 chose to go to Amazon, and then Amazon asks you. So that's like you trust they are who they are because you actually went there. Amazon trusts who you are because you log in or whatever. So you provide something, some one or more factors um, to to authenticate. Um, so I guess yeah. I mean maybe some use case. Is it like the e-commerce use case less of an issue? Um, I think the mandates one is probably where it's rearing its head most, eh, Matt? and that's maybe why it's come up now because that's what Matt's been working on, like most recently. Is this like I'm gonna I want to authorize someone to start getting money out of my account now and potentially recurring in the future? Who is this person I'm authorizing? Um, and, yeah. and like that appears in the that appears in the in in the OAuth consent screen. Like in a typical OAuth flow, you know, you like log in with Google. Let's say you go to some site, you log in with Google, you get redirected to Google. You're going to see a screen that says X Y Z app wants to access your Google account, and here's all the things they want to do. Like that's the that's the moment in which you want to be sure um, that the person requesting this authorization is who they say they are. Is, yeah, is that, that a problem though? Great. Like, are you, are you, 
are you worried that people or that the, the, the sort of browser UI, I'm guessing, or, or whatever like client you're on won't adequately show that it's actually Amazon or it's actually whoever you're dealing with? Well, they have no way of verifying. How would, you, how would you know? So if I claimed I was Amazon asking you to do, or Netflix, for example, there's no way to, like in the current scenario, there's no way to verify that. So there's a there's an interesting approach called like I think it's called indie uh, is it indie ID Don uh, Don did some work on implementing this and it basically you dynamically register as a client so OAuth clients is is it's identifying an OAuth client who you know that you're worried about now in the Google case you would go register yourself with Google as an application and Google vets you before you're able to actually redirect anyone to Google to log in um, as that client. Now, if you want to dynamically allow people to do it, um, indie, indie auth, I think it's indie auth, I don't, uh, yeah, does so it by the indie auth one, um, I think they used URLs as their identifiers. So you would just submit your URL, um, in your registration and then, uh, people could do a get on that URL and, and sort of do a, a verification that way. Um, but I think that's, otherwise the rest of it is pretty similar to OAuth. Yeah. So, so like in, in OAuth terminology, um, David, we're talking about dynamic client registration. So there's fix and like there's, um, there's proposed way to do that. We want to kind of standardize on something, I think for open payments or maybe on some things and have like a, a sort of easy on-ramp one and then maybe a higher higher bar one I don't know yeah I, I definitely we yeah we should definitely have like uh, that that higher security model I'm I guess where I was going is like are there lower value payment scenarios where it's tolerable that you don't have that um, extra assertion at the mandate level so for example if I'm on Amazon's website let's say, and they redirect me to my wallet. It is true that like it's hackable, if you will, like somebody could have, um, like maybe my, I have a rogue plugin or something in my Chrome browser or whatever. Um, I guess I'm just trying to reason through like, do we, do we absolutely need that higher layer of security or could it work? Like if I want to make a $5 payment, on a mandate, so, like so here's a scenario. Here's a scenario. You you've received an email offering you some great special offer that looks like it's from Amazon. You click the link. You go to a site. It's a phishing site that looks like Amazon. Mm. Um, you buy the thing. You get redirected to your wallet to pay. Your wallet says, "Hey, do you want to authorize two hundred dollars to Amazon?" And your wallet says it's Amazon. So you say, "Okay, yeah. sure." Um, that's the that's kind of the the scenario is you're going to your wallet to authorize the payment. And because it's in the context of your wallet, you sort of trust what you see mm -hmm. and your wallet needs to have a way of verifying that what they show you is actually true. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it would suck to lose 200 bucks. I guess I'm, I was just thinking about like lower <laughs> value scenarios. Like yeah, yeah, we, yeah, sure. is this something that sure. is optional or is this something we actually need? It sounds like 
the more you it's talk about it, something we want to we think about and, yeah. and understand where it fits in the flow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, so the one way that's quite nice is looking, or we've got some like prior art, like um, David said, there we can look at what open banking are doing and PSD2 are doing in, in the European and the UK space, respectively. And <clears throat> the one thing they do have, I think, in the UK, they've got this thing called open directory. And it's, it's like a, you, you could basically have like an onboarding um, experience where like if I'm a wallet or an application that I want to develop something on open payments, I just go to this directory and I attest who I am and then this directory will issue its certs. And then you can use those certs and, and for any interaction to, to attest who you are. And that's like a little bit on the extreme side, but to be honest, I quite like how it works because it does allow us to have a bit more control over the ecosystem, which I think is a good thing, especially when you're dealing with payments and trust is a big thing. Like, like we're never going to get to the, the trustless systems that I think a lot of other spaces are going for. And I don't think we need to get to that level. As long as we can have good governance on the open payments level, I'm, I don't think that's a big issue. But I, there could be people who go against that. And I fully understand that. How does that work in the, like if I were to go to that directory and claim to be like Deutsche Bank, how, how are they validating that? Uh, so the, yeah, so they do, I'm not exactly sure how they're doing the full onboarding process, um, but there's different levels of who you are. So, um, so, so they've got this concept of uh, AISPs and PISPs and uh, there's a whole lot of acronyms, but some, some services are basically can just get your account information, but they can't actually do any payment-based stuff. And that has a lot lower tolerance than something that can actually perform payments on your behalf. Um, because there you can actually get access to do full, like once you get access to some of those accounts, it's not scoped by amounts. It's actually like a mandate is it's like unlimited access to your account. Um, so I think they do have various levels in how they uh, like attribute that, but I'm assuming it's just some vetting process, um, which might not even be that difficult. Like I think that that's, if, if you go and look at the traditional payment networks, especially where stuff is pool, uh, pool based, such as cards, like as Adrian pointed out at the start, one of the best attributes of the card network is every single merchant who's been onboarded has been verified in some form. And that provides a really powerful mechanism to have a lot of trust in the systems. Um, so we could try come up with a system that actually the, the wallet level or the wallet level type stuff are the only people that actually have to get authenticated and they can produce certs for, for applications which may be an easier thing to do. So basically you could say that like, um, if you're a wallet or an, a, a sort of like a, a Stripe or something like that, you, you, you would have to register with this directory, but then you can issue certs lower down to the applications that are building on top of you or your clients. And then it wouldn't be, you would be talking in the order of like, initially in the order of like uh, fives to tens instead of like thousands. Anyone else have any thoughts on this? I mean, uh, I think, I mean, from my perspective, I think a decentralized solution would be great, but maybe impractical. Um, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I just question like what it, like are phishing attacks that much riskier in this scenario as opposed to kind of conventional, you know, conventional payments or something like that? I mean, I, I recognize that we don't have a mechanism for chargebacks, but at least kind of 
in the near term, I kind of, I, I tend to agree with David that if you're doing like a low value payment, I don't feel like there's a ton of risk there. Um, but I do have concerns with having a closed directory of applications that are allowed to make payments. And that I think it like could limit interoperability. There's a higher barrier to entry to using open payments or interledger. Um, things to consider. Like Kincaid, I fully agree with you. And that's one of the concerns there. Um, but let's be honest, like at the moment, Interledger has a high barrier to entry because you have to be a part of the network. Um, and that, that, that sort of like a lot of the, it seems from the insights that like the new anti-money laundering laws and your, your, your new sort of um, laws, both in the EU and in the US are making it more and more tricky even for crypto type based solutions, but definitely digital wallets to operate without having strong assertions about what they're doing. And I think without that, you, we're gonna be running into a very difficult battle to try onboard people into this ecosystem. Sure, but I, I, I think we need like, this doesn't solve that problem. Like there are a lot of other, other things that Like, I, I think it's problematic if every participant in the network needs to trust every other participant in the network or needs to choose to trust some, you know, central, some single central authority that's making decisions about who, um, who's in and who's out. So like I think we must also, like, yeah, let's, we, we must also differentiate between trust as in I trust you um, you know, financially to, I trust you say who you are. I trust you to yeah, be who trust, you say you are. Uh, I guess have knowledge of who that entity is. It would be a better way of it. Yeah. We got 10 minutes. Um, Matt, uh, David, did you have anything more you wanted to say on that one? Um, um, I know, David, you want to talk a bit about uh, receipts as well. Yeah, just on the other thing, I, uh, you know, of course, we'll think more about it, but I wonder if there's a way to uh, pull the auth up a layer. Um, I'm, I'm kind of spitballing, but like you could imagine a variety of different ways that two wallets could like authenticate to each other. And maybe that's... Um, something that should be kind of pluggable in open payments to uh, I mean, it kind of makes the protocol less specific, which is not great, but it, it may not be the, it may not be the case that we want to mandate a single auth mechanism in open payments. It, it depends okay. where you're talking about the auth layer though. That's uh, like just important. The thing we're trying to solve here is auth between an application developing on open payments uh, and the wallet. Um, and the trick there is not being normative about that make, means that uh, you get an N, like an N squared problem. Basically, every application has to try and come up with the auth strategy for every other wallet. And that's specifically what we're trying to solve for.
I don't think we're going to make uh, yeah. progress in the next 10 minutes on this, guys, but I think it's a topic worth exploring maybe more on a, a forum post with a, like a problem statement and we can dig into it or maybe set up a conversation on Slack and, and some calls on the side or, yeah. or pick it up again next week. But, um, but yeah, thanks. I, I think wanna... that's a useful sort of definition of the problem statement. David, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to briefly touch on receipts. Uh, we probably don't have time to yeah, yeah go that's that's why i wanted that. us to move on so you can you can do that cool yeah um so ba basically the high level sort of problem question is when you're in an open payments flow like two uh, canonical example in my mind is two wallets um, um like interacting with each other basically so when a sender is making a payment, often there's like other data that needs to come along. So I guess this is bigger than receipts. Um, this is the personal data problem, which is the second thing in my list. But um, information kind of needs to propagate to the receiver. And then uh, you go through the open payments flow and then information needs to propagate back from the receiver to the sender. So that would be like a receipt would be one example of that. So as a problem statement, there's like random information sometimes that needs to go back and forth in an open payments flow. And I think up to this point, we have like a description field maybe, um, or it's just like out of, out of band. So I, I guess I just wanted to throw the question out there. Like, are, is this data flow sort of just out of spec or, or should it be in, in spec in some fashion? I definitely think like in, in the case of receipts, that's a huge domain that like we um, people have tried to standardize receipts in the past um, and it's hard and receipts is like one of those domains where you really don't need to standardize receipts. Like it's works fine for, I use Home Depot and Best Buy in the States here. Like Home Depot has its own receipt system that probably they spent millions of dollars building and you get PDFs and barcodes and stuff like that. Whereas Best Buy is a totally different system and loosely it works by, you know, I can look those up in my email and I really only, only need to present them. Like if I go into the store or oftentimes I don't even need to present them. I can just have them look it up for me. So in an, in an uh, e-commerce case, like I rarely present my receipt to Amazon. I actually like am in Amazon and like they already know my receipts. So I definitely don't want to like standardize receipts or anything like that, but, but even like a linking mechanism perhaps might be interesting um but so I, I have a quick question um how would you differentiate a receipt from a paid invoice or do we need to yeah it's a good question uh, on our team we've we've sort of been saying like if you wanted to see receipts like in a ui you could uh, query the database and find all the invoices where the received amount is equal to the amount and therefore that's like a paid invoice and so you know, treat that like a receipt, but it's a little, it's not quite a receipt as you would imagine, you know, taking into a store, right? Like it's not probably going to have all your line items and uh, what yeah, you bought. It, like store. to me, that's kind of highlights the problem we have with the existing entity model is we, we still don't have the definition of a payment. We, we have a connection, which is kind of a payment, but 
um, receipts are not payments. Like you can give me an, I mean, at least invoices are not payments. You can give me an invoice. I can pay half of it now. I can pay half of it later. If I pay half of it now, I would probably still want a receipt for that payment. So you invoice me a million dollars. I say, cool, I can give you a down payment of 200,000 now. I want some proof that you have got that 200,000 and you accepted it. That's mm -hmm. my receipt. Um, so may, maybe we need to think a bit about that. Uh, like how do we, uh, you know, and, and Matt's been doing a little bit of work on like connecting stream receipts and, and, and so on. So maybe there's something there. Um, I don't know, Matt, we, we're out of time now. You want to give a quick, uh, like two minute overview of what you've been doing there. And maybe there's something we can pick up offline or in Slack. Um, yeah, I mean, two, two minutes, basically, um, Brandon and Ben's work on stream receipts is really, really powerful. It basically allows you to have a verified way that the, the receiver, you, you as the receiver got money without having to do extra calls and stuff. Um, basically started some work on trying to implement open payments, but it seems like there's some, some blockers, um, doing some work with, uh, I'm going to reach out to Brandon, Brandon, if you don't know, you know, now, um, to try and resolve some of that stuff. Um, before we present something to the community to try and understand uh, like how, how that can fit in there. Um, I'm not sure how it would fit in with the, what you, you, so that's more like the, yeah, the payments to the, to, to the invoice part, but there's a secondary part. Like I can imagine, as you say, like there's some sort of business object that's been paid. It could be quite nice to say, well, I go to my UI, like currently if I go to my bank account and look at my credit card statement, I've just got line items and there's no way to link back to where those actually are. Um, there could be a nice way to do that. I agree. And I think uh, that might be something to explore because it could be cool, quite nice to see, Oh, I paid for this at a, at a shop, but I don't know what, like, I can't remember exactly what it is. If I could click on some click on it there and it links me back to that merchant site and shows me what it was again, then that could be, that could be very powerful. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, we, we've got a couple of minutes, but uh, not enough time really to dig anything, dig into anything in any detail. David, um, how do you want to, how do you want to continue on this uh, thread? Should we do it on the forum, on Slack? What, what do you think is going to be the easiest? Yeah, um, probably both Slack. Maybe we can start, and then if it makes sense to move to forum, I'm happy to do that too. Okay, cool. Um, Anyone else have uh, interest in joining discussion around the identity or the receipt side? Um, get David or Matt on, on Slack or, or on the forum. Um, we didn't get to the other topic that I wanted to pick up. We can defer it. Um, I mean, just to talk to what's there in the forum. Uh, you know, we've been having some discussions about what happens, you know, when an intermediary node drops a packet or doesn't deliver a fulfillment in time. Uh, you know, they obviously take a financial hit and trying to sort of quantify what that actually means. You know, if you're a, doesn't make sense as a middle box in a transaction to be processing huge volumes of in-flight packets if there's a chance that an outage costs you, you know, fortunes of money. Um, and I think historically our response to that has been that, well, uh, packets should be really small amounts and they shouldn't be in flight for long. And so you should minimize your risk by having small packets and short expiries. But, you know, that still goes up. The third dimension that can still drive that up is just the volume that you're processing. So it's just sort of, um, uh, it, it's a slightly uh, backwards sort of incentive to not be 
processing high volumes of transactions because it puts you at, at more risk. Uh, anyway, something we want to discuss. And then uh, specifically, we wanted to call out the difference between that and sort of dropping packets in a more of an accounting sense. So if you're an end party, a sender or a receiver, uh, what happens if your stream component is you know processing packets but not emitting events uh, to the application layer fast enough or notifying the application layer of the sort of total on the connection um, and then goes down or um, you know and you lose basically that context that you lose that state um, what are we doing about managing that so that, that's the context there I, I'm happy to take that agenda item and post it as more of a sort of detailed forum post and we can pick it up there or do it next week um, but that's all we have time for this time thanks very much everyone a uh, couple of weeks before our next call which if i check my calendar means we're all the way out to the 13th of may um, so we'll chat again then and thanks very much see you all soon ciao thanks so see you